August. This morning, if you take your Bibles and open them to Malachi chapter 2, that's where we will spend our time. And many of you might recall a couple weeks ago, I mentioned this word infatuation when it comes to the beginning of a marriage relationship. So much excitement, so much anticipation, looking forward to a, a lifetime of memories. Even as I look out there, I know that several are getting ready for that. There's a reason why the words are often affirmed for better or for worse, with elated conviction to do so as well. However, when reality sets in, for some, unfortunately, what do we see transpire? Statistically speaking, we know what this is. Nearly half of all marriages end in divorce. This is tragic. We know our Lord himself in Matthew chapter 19 states clearly that what God has joined together, let no man separate. In our text this morning, we come to one of the most pinnacle passages concerning the priority of marriage. Before we get to our exposition, I need to make a pastoral comment up front. In a church of our size, more than likely, every single one of us in some form or manner have been touched or experienced divorce. I know for some, you've actually experienced its painful consequences. As we examine the Lord's concern for marriage here today, from Malachi chapter 2, I don't want you to forget, if that is you here this morning, and you have felt the sting of divorce, what is undergirding this book as a whole? We talked about that in Malachi chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5. It's the sovereign love of God that applies to each and every one of his children. If you are in Christ, this word does not condemn you. Our God is a faithful God to you in the same manner as a loving and forgiving Father would be to you. I needed to make this comment up front. It's important as we consider the pain of these consequences, which I know some of you have felt. There's still grace. There's still sanctification in looking forward, not looking back at past hurts and pains. As for us all, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16, will show us God's concern for the breaking of his covenants, and specifically the marriage covenant. Now, our goal for application will be to simply answer the question how might we protect marriage from failure? Three priorities will serve to answer that question. And I hope and pray that those answers will drive us to treasure this sacred institution of marriage. Why should we treasure it? We know that marriage should ultimately reflect Christ's love for the church. This is sacred as indeed it should be. And worthy beyond compare 
of our consideration from this passage here this morning. Would you stand with me, please? As we read God's inspired and authoritative, inerrant word of God. Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously each against his brother so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? Judah has dealt treacherously, and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. As for the man who does this, may the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or who presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. This is another thing you do. You cover the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping, with groaning, because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. Yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth for I hate divorce says the Lord the God of Israel and him who covers his garment with wrong says the Lord of hosts so take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously thanks be to God for his word you may be seated Before we look at our first priority, I think it would be helpful for us to define this term covenant from a biblical perspective. It really lays the groundwork for us and having a greater appreciation of how God views this term. One Bible dictionary defines it as an agreement between two parties that specifies requirements for at least one party and includes blessings and curses for obedience or failure. Actually communicates the cutting of a covenant. You don't need to turn there, but you can make a note and reference it later. But the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 34, verses 18 through 20, speaks directly to what this looks like. To where within biblical culture that the animal would be cut in half and men would walk through the animal as to signify their commitment to this covenant. So, let that sink in. For a moment, of course, we are no longer in this church age cutting animals in half, walking in between them to signify our commitment to the Lord. Although, would this original application add a sense of commitment for us when it comes to our desire to honor God's covenants in our lives as if to say cut me in half Lord metaphorically speaking if I were to break this covenant let that never be the case as we desire with all of our hearts to honor God 
in all that we do and in the marriage covenant. We see throughout Scripture, and specifically this text, that God does not take this term lightly. With that in mind, let's look at our first priority concerning the protection of marriage from failure. And number one, to prioritize our covenant with God. And this is found in verses 10 through 13. Now, whenever a marriage relationship begins to go astray horizontally, it's already begun to do so vertically. And this is what the Jews would have heard, specifically, even within this section. Look at the beginning of verse 10. The scripture reads, Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? They were already aware that God had chose Jacob. Of course, we know in the book of Genesis, Moses reminds them all that all of creation has been created in the image of God. Hopefully, one would hope that as chosen image bearers of God, that some would reflect his faithfulness. And nevertheless, do you know the story? Even with these special distinctions in place, this is not what we see concerning these men. In order for us to take a closer look Revolving around this first priority, a vertical one, of prioritizing our covenant, first and foremost with God, I want us to explore a couple questions around this first priority. So, how did they not prioritize their covenant with God? Look at the end of verse 11 and where it states, they married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, make a note. You can reference it later. I won't go there. But Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 3 and 4, clearly displays that this was a direct violation of covenant. That as the chosen people of God, they were not to intermarry with unbelievers. These men certainly would have been aware of this, and yet they chose to not prioritize their covenant with God. And then, in verse 13, and we will come back to verse 12, but for now in verse 13, there's one more action that demonstrates how they did not prioritize their covenant with God. Look with me, the verse states that they were covering the altar with tears while moaning and groaning. Why was this the case? Well, we can see from the context. The Yahweh refused to accept their offering. It was hypocritical from the beginning. This moaning, this groaning, was actually a literal bawling in disapproval. That's what these men were doing. All the while knowing that they were in direct violation of the covenant. And yet they bawl in disapproval and that God was not accepting their offering. Apparently, Samuel's charge to King Saul within biblical history, was not hidden deep down within their hearts. You know it if we were to turn there in 1 Samuel chapter 15, that obedience always precedes and takes precedence over sacrifice. Unfortunately, though, whether it was their covenantal command or the consequences of their hypocrisy, it was not enough to change their hearts. 
Let's look at another question concerning this first priority. Prioritizing our covenant with God. What was God's view of their disobedience? You'll see throughout this passage, this word treacherously, actually used five times, which is a key indicator for us of the significance of the word. Within our first priority here, within verse 10 and verse 11, we see the the word used twice. It certainly begins to shed light on the severity of God's view of their disobedience. Now, some of you probably have an ESV Bible with you, a wonderful translation. That Bible and some others translate this word treacherously from the Hebrew as faithless. But I don't believe it does justice to the intensity of God's disfavor. Simply put, this is a betrayal of the highest degree. Treacherous to God. In the verses that follow, we'll continue to see the context support this. However, there's also another word that continues to communicate this severity. And we see it in verse 11. Many of us are familiar with the word, and it's pretty severe even to us, and that is the word abomination. Abomination. When your mind thinks of what is the most repulsive thing that you have ever witnessed or seen, many images unfortunately come to mind. What are a couple words that come to mind to describe that repulsive image? For me, I would say horror and disgust. These are two words that biblically can be utilized to further define this word abomination and continue to demonstrate God's view of their disobedience. And then finally, in verse 11 again, we see the following phrase, for Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord which he loves. We might even say here that Judah has desecrated or poisoned the holiness of Yahweh, which he himself loves. Desecrated, poisoned the holiness of God. So, treachery, abomination, desecration, all continue to combine in order for us to have an appreciation and understanding beginning to shape our understanding as we seek to rightly divide the word of truth, God's view for this treacherous act. Let's look at one more question, and then I'll offer a thought for application before moving to our second priority. What are the consequences of this treacherous betrayal? Coming back now to verse 12, we find the answer. You'll see that these men were men from the tents of Jacob. This conveys a sense of covenantal community. And yet, what does Yahweh say concerning these men who should be a part of a covenantal community with the Lord? He says, the man who does this will be cut off. Powerful words indeed. In Leviticus chapter 17 verse 10, this type of cutting off is also in conjunction with the Lord turning his face against someone. Have you ever felt rejected 
banned, ostracized, kicked out of a group or community. Not to mention, perhaps a group that you previously felt esteemed and recognized and honored and yet now rejected. This is exactly what this verse is indicating. Are we beginning to see the extent of God's view and his utter disdain of such treachery? What about us, though? If the first priority is to prioritize vertically our covenant with God, then what are some practical answers based on this? How might we take this and learn from it and desire to embrace our covenant with God? Answers, as I continue to articulate, first are vertical which is key, which is fundamental in our desire to follow Christ in any area of life, let alone the marriage covenant. Let me begin with the obvious. We see it in verse 11 as we read. And that's the marrying of unbelievers. Those of us here living within this church age Many of us are very familiar with 2 Corinthians chapter 6. And as I look to many of our young people within this room that desire that good gift of marriage in the future, hopefully every single one of you, I know as many of us in this room, have been reminded time and time again about the dangers of being unequally yoked to an unbeliever. If you desire marriage in the future and you're still in that stage of life, and you know what? Even those of us who are not in that stage, we have a responsibility to counsel and to pour into the lives of those that will transition into that stage. But if you are in that stage, my friends, even looking at many of these young people that we love, You're a vital component of this church now and for the future. The pursuit of an unbeliever is completely unacceptable and a violation of God's law. We take this for granted because we've been raised in that environment, many of us. But let me even share with you here this morning that I know that from the word of a good friend within this church, that there is even a large church within this local community where a leader counseled a young adult differently than what this word and scripture as a whole communicates concerning the marrying of an unbeliever. This cannot and must not ever happen as we hold to all that this word is in our lives, we must not take it for granted. Vodi Bakum, in his book, What He Must Be to Marry My Daughter, identified what he calls four Ps. There's a moment I'll say to the fathers in this room that still have young ladies Preparing for perhaps that in the future as the spiritual head of your home in regards to these four P's. That man that is interested in your daughter must should be, should be able to be a prophet, priest, provider, and protector. A believer in the Lord. Able to fulfill his duties, his responsibilities as he takes over the headship of that young lady. For those of you young or older who are still in this position, 
Let me phrase it this way. Don't allow the gentle breeze of infatuation to distract you from the tornadic path of destruction in mixing worldviews. God's word is calling you to a higher standard. Additionally, when it comes to application, if we're going to prioritize our covenant with God, then we must be committed to a proper focus in worship. And we looked at this, we discussed this in Malachi chapter 1. The priests of Malachi's day became apathetic, became disobedient because of an overemphasis upon themselves. The breaking of God's law is inevitable in our flesh when our focus remains on ourselves. Now, in the past, we've mentioned multiple times, and for good reason, Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, that wonderful verse that continues to challenge us to dwell on righteousness, to learn righteousness, and then to practice righteousness rather than dwelling on ourselves. We look to dwell on Christ and His Word as we prioritize our covenant with God. Even for those of us here that are not in this position, awaiting this good gift, desiring this good gift, prioritize on dwelling and learning and practicing righteousness with the Lord rather than an overemphasis upon a spouse, perhaps, for the future. Now let me offer one other thought for consideration. When you're tempted, as we all are at times, to break God's law, we would be wise to remember this word, treacherous. Of course, if we are in Christ, the slate is wiped clean. We have been forgiven. We are no longer under condemnation. I made that point pastorally up front. However, let us never forget how God views sin. Ananias and Sapphira died from their lies. It's treacherous. It's an abomination to the one who died to set you free from the bondage of sin. How do we protect marriage from failure? It must begin with the vertical, prioritizing our covenant with God. To quote Pastor Stephen Lawson, he states, A high view of God leads to high worship and holy living. But a low view of God leads to trivial worship and lowly living. Let that be a challenge for us all, that we would purpose to have a high view of God in order that we would not act treacherously in disobeying, living a life of disobedience concerning his covenants, whether that be his covenants in general or specifically the marriage covenant. Our second priority is to prioritize our covenant with our spouse. And here is the horizontal. Following their hypocritical whining, the prophet begins to explain even in more detail another reason for their cursing. 
as the text states, cutting them off. Look with me at verse 14 and the beginning of 15. And yet you say, for what reason? Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. But not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. And what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? Now, first off, I don't want us to miss the covenantal language regarding the Lord as a witness here. Listen to the words of Genesis chapter 31, verse 50, concerning the Lord as a witness when it comes to covenant. If you mistreat my daughters, or if you take wives beside my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is witness between you and me. Go back to the original definition that we offered for covenant. The Jews of that day had forgotten the significance of a personal agreement between God and man. And think of this element even within our marriage ceremonies, within our current context. Often, a ring is utilized between the bride and the groom to affirm their covenantal faithfulness to pledge before God and witnesses their faithfulness to one another. And they repeat words such as before God and these witnesses, I give you this ring as a symbol of my love and commitment. As for Israel, in the face of God, their covenantal witness they once again dealt treacherously against their wives. And we'll save verse 16 for the final priority. But we can see from this verse what was that in this case concerning their treacherous betrayal, but a sign of ultimate betrayal as they practiced what God hates in the act of divorce. Now, we know from Deuteronomy chapter 24 that God's word allows for divorce. And we also know that unfortunately, many men over the ages have used that and abused that in order that they might justify their betrayal of the marriage covenant. What's more, we also know from Matthew chapter 19 and Deuteronomy chapter 24 that Moses indicated that the only means acceptable for divorce was due to sexual immorality and the hardness of man's heart. Now we'll see more in our final priority, considering how that is even, to the extent, not appropriate, although acceptable. The biblical truth is crystal clear. Divorce is a treacherous act. And by the same token, I love the significance of this word companion that we see in the text. Many of us fully understand and appreciate the joy of sharing life together. Whether life brings the highest of highs and the lowest of lows, living life and the pleasures that it brings, the struggles that it brings together is second to none. We know that. We understand that. We've experienced it. 
think of this evening within the context of the ancient Near East culture. A culture where women were often treated as nothing more than pawns in a man's game. And yet, and this is not what the Bible calls of men when it comes to fulfilling their covenant to their spouse. These men, instead of embracing that covenant and treating their wives as a companion, as a friend, covenantally linked as one, chose to send away their wives in a treacherous act. In order to further solidify this hatred of such betrayal, we see another ramification of divorce in the beginning of verse 15. Now, depending on your translation, you will find a mixed bag of renderings with this verse. There's no question that this verse is extremely difficult to translate from the Hebrew. Yet, I don't want us to get lost in the weeds. There's a simple principle that still applies. Whether this verse speaks to what God desires or what sound judgment in a man should produce, the principle remains the same. What is that principle? We see it in verse 15 in two words when it comes to marriage, and that is godly offspring. Godly offspring has been a concern of God's from the beginning when it comes to the marriage covenant. We see this in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. The first command given within the marriage covenant. It's clearly on display that children were one aspect of that priority when it comes to that. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Many of us can affirm the joy and the blessing that children are a gift from the Lord. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. That said, why is it important to prioritize one's covenant with their wife? Because godly offspring are often a result of that priority. As for us, as it was for them, the vertical is always the priority. But we live and operate in a horizontal world full of relationships. With that said, before we move to our final priority, let's ask a question again for application. How is this helpful for us today? Once again, there's the obvious. What God has joined together, let no man separate. That's our commitment. As we seek to honor God in all that we do, to glorify Him in our actions and our deeds and word and in truth, coming back to that reference I made of Deuteronomy chapter 24 and the potential acceptance of divorce, let me say this, even in the betrayal of sexual immorality, Reconciliation is always the goal. Divorce, no matter what the circumstances, no matter how vile they may be, is always treacherous. We don't have the time to, to speak of them, but I've seen it firsthand in the lives of men and women faced with utter betrayal, 
utter treachery from their spouses, and yet they purposed to push through and honor God first in order that they might not violate that covenant. Or maybe there are some here this morning that that word divorce would never cross your mind and praise the Lord. You are so committed that that would never transpire no matter what circumstances or betrayal you might face. Praise the Lord for that. But in all reality, are there some of us at times that are dealing treacherously with our spouses in our hearts? Your wife, your husband, is joined to you as one flesh by covenant with God as a witness. Paul is going to tell us men in the room inspired by the Holy Spirit, that we are called to cherish and to nourish our wives. That word cherish is only used one other time in the New Testament in 1 Thessalonians. And you know the picture that it communicates in that passage? The same type of cherishing that takes place between a mother and her nursing infant. Men. Is that how we desire to cherish and nourish our wives in order that we might not be found treacherously dealing with them in our hearts? Ladies, you know where I'm going. In that same passage, Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 5 when it comes to application to this priority, respect your husband. Submit to him in everything as unto the Lord. God's standard is a good and righteous standard. And it causes us to first prioritize our relationship with him. And then by the grace of God to prioritize our relationship with our spouses. And what are we doing to treat each other as true companions in the biblical sense, to prioritize our covenant with our spouse, to protect marriage from failure. And our last priority, I want us to consider our commitment to this worthwhile endeavor that God is calling each and every one of us to partake in. And that is number three, to prioritize our commitment to obedience. In the second half of verse 15 and then 16, you'll notice the same phrase repeated twice. Take heed to your spirit and do not deal treacherously. What is it that you guard with all of your heart like nothing else. With all of your might, you protect it, you preserve it, you watch over it. This is what is being communicated when it comes to take heed to your spirit, do not deal treacherously with the wife of your youth. In essence, it's a commitment towards obedience that is worthy of being guarded with conviction. Additionally, returning to this phrase, powerful as it is, from the Lord himself, for I hate divorce. In chapter 1, we looked at this word hate within that context. And we made the argument that in God, there is no injustice. There is no evil in his holy Hatred. Malachi's message and of course 
the disposition of God throughout all of the pages of Scripture would never contradict his character. God's hatred of divorce is a righteous standard. Why is that the case? It communicates how divorce fundamentally violates his faithfulness to his covenants. And then, in graphic, in divine imagery, verse 16's righteous hatred continues for the man, as you will see within the text, who covers his garment with wrong. Now, whether it's Ruth, chapter 3, verse 9, or Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 8, or the historical customs of the day. A garment was intended to convey a picture of protection over the spouse. And yet, what we see here is an actual picture that is more akin to a blood-spattered stained garment upon an abused victim. God hates this. Once again, my friends, God's view leaves no room for complacency when it comes to our commitment towards obedience. Our commitment to honor our covenant first with him, secondly with our spouse. And once again, let me encourage you, those of you who are not in this position, even off the context of the account that I shared with you of a local church within this area, we have a responsibility to pour these truths within to others that desire this good gift. As we close, I pray that the Holy Spirit would apply this priority as he sees fit within your life. However, I'll offer one thought myself. What is it that you might guard and watch over and protect in order that you might protect marriage from failure. What is it? For Job, one of those commitments is found in chapter 31, verse 1. When we read, I have made a covenant with my eyes not to look upon a woman with lust. Different translations render it in other words, but the truth still remains. Are we so committed? And that applies to the females as well, not just the men. To obedience that we would hate a faithless approach to the marriage covenant, a treacherous approach that would allow for sexual immorality in all of its 21st century forms, i.e. pornography, or whatever that might look like. It's treacherous. It's an abomination. It must not be found in us. By the grace of God, we need His grace. We need His sanctification. This world that we live in, in many respects, we are bombarded with these temptations. But let us remember this word, treachery. Let us remember to be found faithful to the wife of our covenant. Women, to the husband of your covenant. The Puritan John Owen, in his book, called it, it's a book if you want to, in the future, perhaps read it. It's a wonderful read. It's called The Mortification of Sin. Don't trouble yourself with that word, mortification. Listen to this quote. 
because it's so applicable. Whether it was written 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago, John Owen, the Puritan, said, Be killing sin or it will kill you. Why are we committed to obedience and the killing of sinful treachery towards our spouses? It's because Christ died in order that he might present us without spot or wrinkle. In the same manner, how can we not lay down our lives in obedience? For the protection of the marriage covenant. First, vertically prioritizing our covenant with God. Second, prioritizing our covenant with our spouses. And then thirdly, prioritizing our commitment, our conviction to what God has called us to do obedience a commitment that hates any form of treachery in marriage a commitment which fuels our selfless love for each other that is what God is requiring of us and by his grace we can be found faithful Pray with me. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. It's as sweet as honey. Lord, we thank you for your forgiveness. We thank you for your reconciliation, tearing down the barrier of sin within our lives. A message such as this, at times leaves us convicted, Lord, but we know that your grace is sufficient. But Lord, let your grace never be an excuse for us when it comes to pursuing holiness, when it comes to pursuing faithfulness, when it comes to a commitment and a desire for us to be found killing sin in order that it might not be found killing us. We love you, Lord. We worship you, Lord. And we desire not to be treacherous, but faithful and obedient, unworthy servants of our righteous King. In Jesus' name we pray.